All right, uh, if you want to read along with me in the Bible, we will be in Acts 9.32, and we'll be reading to the end of the chapter. All right. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down to also to the saints who lived in Leda. There he found a man named Annas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Annas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Leda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went to them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter said, put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up and gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. This is God's word. Good evening. Thank you. We're continuing in Acts, as you would have expected. We'll be here for a while still. Acts chapter 9. So we're in our last of our character studies here in Acts, and we are going to be talking about someone who I think probably most of us, if, if you've been in the church, we are probably familiar with. We're going to be looking at Peter. And we're, we're going to start in this passage here. We're going to finish out chapter 9, because I think there are a couple of things here to kind of hit on that are exemplary for Peter, specifically. And then just so you know where we're going, so you can get excited, we're going to uh, go back to the Gospels, and we're going to be playing Peter's greatest hits all the way through, through the end. So uh, we're going to be taking a look at Peter in a, in a, in a very sort of uh, over his, his whole life sort of, sort of view. But we're going to start here in Acts chapter 9. Going into this passage here, so Brent read beginning in verse 32, but before this we had the conversion of Saul. Uh, now, he'll be known as Paul. But the one thing that was really pointed out for Saul was that he would become, his role would be to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And I think for uh, a lot of us, in a general sense, we sort of think of the, the 11, which really there was 12, because we forget Matthias. So the 12, where they were mostly to Jews, and then you had Paul, who was to the Gentiles. And that's not really how it plays out. Because we see in chapter 9, we start to, or even going back into chapter 8, we see this expansion happening. And I wanted to highlight this because uh, I think we get kind of this false understanding of how the gospel moves out, uh, especially uh, as we kind of have a myopic view of certain, certain parts of this. But uh, just in reading through chapters 8 and 9, we can see that because Jesus was not around, persecution focused on the church. If Jesus had been around, they would have focused their attacks on Jesus. Jesus isn't around, so the attacks on Jesus are focused on his body. 
And so in a general sense, persecution has finally started to set in and in, in a sort of a manner that we'll become very familiar with in the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, honestly. Focused a lot um, on, on the Jewish kind of origin of this, but it, it does expand out from there. But what you see in chapters 8 and 9 is that fulfillment. We talked about this before, especially with Philip, that fulfillment of the Great Commission, those promises that Jesus had made that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, then to the outer, or the outer parts of the earth, outside of that region, to the Gentiles, to the nations. And this is what we saw in chapter 8. We saw that move to Samaria. Uh, we even saw some prelude stuff happening in the region of Judea already. And then we started to see this move here. Right? So it, it kind of started with, with Saul going to Damascus to extend the persecution. So what we're kind of seeing is there was already a presence of the gospel outside of these regions. Otherwise, why would Saul be going to Damascus to extend the persecution, right? So he is already, we're starting to see that expansion happen. Saul is then told he will be named Paul from there on, and he will now be the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, Saul kind of goes away for a bit, for about 14 years in being prepared for that before he sort of settles into that role. So what we see here, starting in verse 32, is we start to see that expansion happen. So we see now, as Peter went here and there among them all, Peter has to start traveling. So persecution has come. Most of the Christians are moving out. The apostles kind of stuck around near Jerusalem. But Peter is moving about. He's going here and there. I guess, well, not everywhere, but just here and there. He ends up going to, to the coast. He goes out to, to Joppa. Now, for us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. It's just another name, maybe. But the region that he goes to, this is traditionally sort of the Philistine area of, of Israel. It's, it's the area where you had those five cities of the Philistines. And if we were to go back into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, this is that region there where they had a stronghold. This region that Peter goes to is populated by a lot of Gentiles. And you can tell that from the names. So there's two sections here, two different healings. The first one is for someone named Aeneas, which does not sound Hebrew. It is a Greek name. And then you have Tabitha, whose name is translated. So she has two names. She has a Greek name. This is a Gentile region. And so this idea of the gospel spreading out and starting to go to the nations, this is starting to take place. And I'd say it's, it's happening naturally, except that natural move is because of persecution, which is pretty natural. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit here. So just real quick, we're going to look at these, because I think these are descriptive of where Peter has grown and, and who he has become. Let's look at this first one, starting at verse 32. Peter went here and there among them all. He came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. Pause there for a second. There's already Christians there. He's not going there planting churches. Most likely these are believers who had been in Jerusalem. And they now moved out from that region and went out there. So there are already believers there. He's going to visit them. He found a man named Aeneas. We don't know if he was part of the church or not. It says that he was on a mattress for eight years, so the idea would probably be that he was not part of that group that went down to Jerusalem and came back. We don't know if he was connected with them. But there was found a man who was bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed, and Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus, it says Christ, but I'm going to say it how 
it would have been translated, Jesus the Messiah heals you. Rise and make your bed. Which should remind us of another healing that took place. But look at verse 35. I'm sorry, the end of verse 34. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Okay, so a few things here. This sounds a whole lot like the healing that takes place in Mark chapter 2, very early on in the gospel that we see in Mark, where again, there is someone who is healed, and what he's told to do is to pick up his mat and take it home. Get up, get to work. That's kind of what he says. Get up and don't waste any time, take this, take this mat home. And he does this, and he apparently is someone who was known because this word spreads and people then come to know who the Lord is. They turn to the Lord. This becomes an evangelistic moment. And it is also interesting because in a lot of those healings that Jesus did during his ministry, what was one thing he would say to people he had healed? What would he say a lot of times? He would say their sins are forgiven, which would be awesome, but what else would he say? It sounds weird. What would he tell them to do? Don't tell anybody. Shh. Keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. And there's reasons for that. That's not in our passage, but in here, there's nothing like that. This actually is meant to go out. This, this, this idea, this story of healing is supposed to spread. People are supposed to know. And so it's a little bit different. Here we are trying to let people know who Jesus is. And notice he heals in the name of Jesus. Jesus the Messiah heals you. There is no doubt where this healing is coming from. Right? Used for evangelism. The next story that we get related to this one is the same but different. So with this, there's someone who is, who is sick and dies, right? This is Tabitha. So look at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. Joppa is about, it's about 10 miles away from where he was. Pretty close. There's a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas which doesn't help us because that doesn't translate anything for us. But she was full of good, it means, means like gazelle. It's like just a, a graceful type of name. But she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. When they had washed her and they laid her in the upper room, so they prepared her body. This is just normal. And I think that's important because they called Peter, but they had washed the body. It was in the upper room. There's not necessarily an expectation that well, we're going to call Peter, and Peter's going to heal her. Not necessarily. Since Leto was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men, urging him, please come to us without delay. Peter rose and went with them. He arrived, took him to the upper room. Now, this is, I think, an interesting point here. This, this, this shows you what the church is doing. So again, this is, these are believers not in Jerusalem. They have gone out of Jerusalem. They're a different region, a Gentile reason, region. But look what they're doing. Or look what she has done, I should say. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. She is living out and fulfilling what James talks about in his letter, which is... Pure religion, true religion is ministering to orphans and widows. She is making clothes, repairing clothes. She is serving widows. Why this is significant? This is significant because the reason why that is pure religion, true religion, is because these are people who can't serve you back. There is no, I'll help you and you help me. It is pure charity. There is no expectation that they would ever be able to help you in any way. Physically, right? They could pray for you. They could encourage you. They can, they can serve you in those ways. But as far as charity goes, as far as giving goes, there's no expectation you'll ever get anything back. 
So it's purely because there is a love for someone else and caring and there's sacrificial giving. You're never gonna get that back. And she lived this out. This is, we would probably say, this was her ministry. This is what she felt was really important to be doing to serve people who needed these things. She used her talents and her gifts to serve people in a real and substantial way. And they were showing these things. There was, look, look at what she's done. Look at what she accomplished for us. But Peter put them all outside and knelt and prayed. It's also interesting. Because the first healing was meant to be evangelistic. This one feels different. This is get everybody out and it's just Peter and the Lord and Tabitha. Turned to the body and he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. She saw Peter. She sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her life. This also feels like one of those healings that Jesus accomplished. Remember the girl who had a fever? He said, oh, she's just asleep, and everybody laughed. And then, lo and behold, she is healed. She raises up. I think she says she was hungry, because Tabitha wasn't hungry. Calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Again, this story goes out. It's meant to be known. And he stayed in Joppa for many days. He stayed with Simon the Tanner. I don't know if it's they found camaraderie because they shared a name. But he stayed with Simon the Tanner. The reason why I think these are important stories in talking about the character, which is now we're going to move kind of into that character study of, of Peter's because what Peter does here, if you switch out the name for Peter and you put Jesus and you just kind of moved it back and moved it in your Bible a few books back, it, this would feel exactly like what Jesus would do. Don't you think? In fact, there are other healings that are almost exactly like these. And I think what this shows is, is Peter is going, it says he's wandering, he's going here and there, and he's going and he's doing and he's accomplishing what the Lord would have done if he was there. This, I think, shows this place where Peter's at. He's now stepped into this, this place of ministry. There's no pretense. He's not trying to show anyone else what he's doing. He, he just is doing this because this is what the Lord would have done. And he's going and he's doing it. He's accomplishing those things. I think this shows amazing growth for Peter when you go back to the Gospels and compare what he's doing there, which is what we're going to get, go ahead and do. We're, again, we're going to play Peter's greatest hits at this point here. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to flip around a little bit. If you kind of just want to be here for the story, feel free, but I'll give the passages where I can, where it's fitting. We're not going to read through all these, but, but looking at, at this, I wanted to go all the way back to the beginning for for Peter, back when Peter was not Peter, back when Peter was Simon. And so there's, there's actually a, few, a couple different stories that we get in the gospel about where did Peter, where did the Simon Peter come from? A couple of them are very general. One of them is a little bit more detailed, so we're going to look at that. But John chapter 1 is where we'll go. It's also found in Matthew 4, Luke chapter 5. John chapter 1, and there's a reason we'll go there. I'll show you here in a second. So when we find Simon, there's a couple things that have taken place, and we'll see it here in chapter uh, 1, verse 40. We'll kind of back up a little bit here. There's a connection with John. Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he was walking by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come and you will see. So they came, saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day. It was about the tenth hour, so it was a little late. One of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, Uh, Follow Jesus, and who followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Very bold. Hey, we found him. Been looking for him, we found him. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You might see Jonah there. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. How's that for an introduction? I love this. This is one of my favorite introduction, introductions that Jesus has. Hi. Hi, Simon. You're Peter. Your name is going to be Cephas. That's, that's one of the translated words for that. But you're, you're going to be Peter. You, you are now Peter. And what, what's neat about that is that name means rock, right? Or it could mean pebble. Rock. And what you start to see, this, this change of name, I think, is a big deal. It's a big deal for, for Peter. Peter, I think, likes being called the rock. I think you can tell, because there are times where he doesn't do something so well, or he says something not quite on point or something, but there, there are times when Jesus calls him Simon again. And if you start to line those things up, it's when he probably could have made a different decision, a better decision. He's called Simon, and that had to grade on Peter, if you think about it. I think Peter liked the fact that his new master gave him a new name. But what's also interesting is when Peter, when Jesus meets Peter, is he Peter? Is he the rock? I think we'd say he's probably more Simon at that point. By the time we see him there in Acts chapter 9, I think we could confidently say he has stepped into that role of being that one who Jesus was calling him to be. But he wasn't that. And I think it's an amazing thing to see. Jesus calls him what he will be at the very beginning. It's a promise. You are Peter. Peter gets to Go along with Jesus. You could say he has many adventures, maybe misadventures, depending on your perspective and how you're looking at the story. Peter is allowed by the Lord to do some pretty cool things. One of the things we learned about Peter, he's quite outspoken. And whether it is because the group has asked him to or he just feels it's his responsibility, he speaks for the group. He's not afraid to tell the master what we're all thinking. Maybe he translates for himself, I don't know, but he, he speaks for the group. And one of those times you can, you, can, you can tell that this was something that was pivotal for him. Ma- Matthew 16, we're clearly skipping around a little bit, and like I said, greatest hits, right? Matthew 16. Matthew 16 shares with us some, some pretty cool things. 16, 17, pretty neat part of this gospel. But this is after the feeding of the 5,000, which is, which is back in 15. This, it's one of the more pivotal stories, what takes place with the feeding of the 5,000. We're not gonna spend a ton of time there because we're gonna move forward a little bit. Verse 13 of chapter 16. Now when Jesus came to the disciples, I'm sorry, to the, not disciples, came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Pause there for a second. It is very, very significant that they are at Caesarea Philippi. 
And the timing of this is very, very significant as well. So this place is more of a Gentile-y kind of area. I made up a word. A very Gentile-y area. Right? Caesarea, like Caesar. Philippi, like Philip. Uh, Alexander the Great's father. This is a very Greek-influenced area. But this, this area here, Caesarea Philippi, had this grotto, had Penea, right there. And, and during this time, there were festivals that were taking place. There was a place that was built right into the mountain there where they had a whole bunch of gods that were placed there. And this region famously would, would worship these, these goat-like gods. This was a very, it's a very weird sort of festival that they would have there during this time. And when he's there, you can almost imagine this backdrop of all these different gods that are there. And Jesus standing in front and says, so who do people say that I am? Now, they don't say, oh, Hercules or... They don't go through that list. But notice the list that they do give here. Well, some say John the Baptist, which has to be weird. That doesn't make any sense, but that's what people say. Others, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Plural you, all of you. Who do you all say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now it's interesting there because like we just said before, there are a lot of times where Simon is used and it's sort of like a, a dig on him. And that's not this. It's just saying you, Simon, talking to him specifically, him as, as a man. Um, he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In 18, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. You're, you're a rock. And on this rock, most likely pointing back to, my, to himself, he said, on myself, on, on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it which is also interesting because standing behind him in that grotto right below the mountain there was a place that was called the gates of hell. He's saying, you see all this back here? None of this, none of this is going to defeat me. It's not going to defeat the church. It won't prevail against it. Verse 19, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Based on this verse, there are a lot of people who think that this is Jesus saying that he's the Pope. Uh, it's not. Um, for a lot of different reasons, which we'll, we'll get into later in Acts probably. But, this is significant. This is hugely significant because Peter here makes a confession speaking for all of them. We all believe that you are. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. This was their confession. But then look what happens right after this. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. So he's telling them more insight. Okay, you have made this confession. You are right. I am the Messiah. Now I'm telling you what the next step of the plan is. Look at the response, verse 22. And Peter took him aside. Okay, pause there. Hey, Jesus, come, come here. I got to talk to you real quick. Okay, Peter's pretty bold. Master, I got, I got to pull you aside. And he began to rebuke him. I don't know if you felt a little puffed up from this confession and, wow, you're, you're going to be this rock, you're going to be this important person, right? Look what he says here, verse 22, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whew. So on one side we have, hey, you've made an amazing confession. The Father has revealed this to you. And then the very next, he's rebuked. You're my adversary. It's possible there was that strong response because maybe Jesus was, you know, from the garden that he may have been tempted by some of these things. You know, the enemy tried to tempt him with those things. So he makes a strong stand to say, no, that's never going to happen. He calls him the adversary. Anyone who's going to say, no, Jesus, you're not going to die, he's opposing the plan. You don't get it. You don't understand. So we have this height that Peter has there for confessing that you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and then the next passage, he's Satan. Roller coaster of emotions. And then from there, right, then he, and then I'm sure he gives the, the wonderful revelation to them. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And at that point, many of the disciples may have thought, what have we gotten ourselves into? Now we are going to be crucified? All right. Probably hyperbole, right? Probably not. Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That they'll probably latch on to. All right, we'll latch on to that part. Chapter 17 we go from, so in chapter 16, we go from a high to a low to now the next high. Because Peter is one of these disciples that's brought up to the top of the mountain that they're standing in front of. To Mount Hermon. They go to the top, and Jesus is transfigured. They now see the glory of Jesus in a way that they have not witnessed before. They've witnessed him doing amazing things, but they have not actually witnessed the glory. And on top of that, they hear the voice of the Father Right? Now, it happens to be in a kind of a weird sort of little situation here. Um, it says, And after six days, he took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Verse 3, And behold, they appeared to him, uh, I'm sorry, and there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Look at Peter's response. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. It's good. Okay. If you wish, we will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This could have been Peter, like, I don't know what to say here. I feel like I should say something. And then he says it, and then what is he talking about? It's all built. Let's build houses for everybody. While he's still speaking, this is one of my favorite Peter interactions here. While I was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. It, it feels like kind of a rebuke. It's like, Peter, stop. Just listen. Of course, they're overcome. They fall down as dead men, right? They, and then when they wake up, Jesus is just Jesus. What Peter is most likely saying here is, Oh, it's starting. It's going to start here. All right, we got Moses and Elijah here. I don't know why, how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. They just know it's Moses and Elijah. Here's the glory. He's like, all right, so we're setting up camp here. This is where our base of operation is going to be. We're going to put up three tents, three little places here, Jesus, Elijah, Moses. This is our base. We're going to move out from here. And then what? Like we're going to gather an army and we're going we're gonna to go for it, right? Like here we go. It's starting it's starting. The father's like, no, just listen, Peter. Just listen to my son. Then they wake up and it's just normal again. But from here on, the conversation is not the same. I think they understand it's not what they thought it was supposed to be. It's not we're going to kick out the Romans, we're not going to do those things from here on. The conversation from Peter, James, and John has to do with 
the glory. They saw a piece of it. Now they know there's something more than what they were seeing before. There's, it's bigger than they thought. Luke chapter 10 records, after this, they, they were sent out. So Peter gets to join this, these different groups going out to go into minister. And they go out and they, they heal, they, they cast out demons, and then they come back and they report and amazing things were taking place. He gets on-the-job training. Luke 22 records probably Peter's lowest point, which is his denial. He denies Jesus before others to save his own skin. We've kind of talked about this a little bit before when they were standing before the Sanhedrin, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time there, but Peter goes before other people. It's the servant girl. He's embarrassed to say, yes, I'm with him who's on trial. Real genuine fear that he's going to be dragged in there. So gone are these grandiose statements from Peter, I will never let this happen to you. Now he is too afraid to actually just admit that he even knows Jesus. Right? I've, I've, I've thought a lot about what really is the difference between what Judas did and what Peter does. Obviously, there's greater impact from what Judas did. Judas did it for money for financial gain. Peter does it just because he's afraid. Both a treacherous act, but Peter, Peter comes back. Peter sticks around. Like, well, not then. He left, but he comes back. All right, he comes back. John 21, and this is worth turning to, John chapter 21. We see Jesus essentially bringing him back into the fold. Peter's with the other disciples during the crucifixion. Then the resurrection takes place and he runs out with John. We covered that. We talked about that. And then they have a a lovely picnic breakfast there on the shore. It's interesting because it's, they're out fishing. I guess you don't know what else to do. You go fishing if you're a fisherman. Jesus asked them from the shore, children, which is kind of funny to call them that, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. This mirrors that first interaction or one of those first interactions that Jesus has with Peter where when he sees them fishing, he tells them to cast the net out after fishing all night and catching nothing, and they catch an insane amount of fish, right? Busting the nets. And so then they go and they fish and they pull up fish. Oh, that's got to be Jesus. Runs and, or doesn't run, he swims. Swims to the shore. Which could be just, look at him, look at Peter, he's just running into it, just loves jumping in there. Although, he also didn't have to deal with the fish at that point. So I don't know if that was self-serving or not. But he... Swims over and Jesus prepares a meal, which is pretty nice. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He, he, he asked him this three times. Do you, do you love me? What he is saying there, in, in the Greek, he's using the different terms for love. So he'll say, do you, do you agape me? Do you, do you love me with a sacrificial love? And Peter responds, you know I phileo you. You know I love you like a brother. He asks him a second time, do you agape me? He says, you know I phileo you. I love you like a brother. So then the third time he says, do you phileo me? He says, you know I do. So then feed my sheep. And then look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. The same thing that he said that very first time they met. Follow me. He knew that he was going to die. So most likely what he did was he stretched his arms out to show that he was going to die. When he's old, someone is going to take him where he doesn't want to go, which is to his own death, to, to a cross, and he's going to die. That's, he knew that was at the end, the end of the road. And this is a special commission from Jesus. He says, you will die. You will glorify God by dying. So I think that's important to understand because then Peter still shows up. He still shows up in the upper room. He still shows up with the disciples knowing that this path will lead to his own death. So remember those words, those triumphant, courageous words, yeah, I, would, I would die for you, Jesus. Now he's actually taking the steps to do so. Now he knows if he continues on this path, he will die. Acts, Holy Spirit comes and he preaches a sermon, which you've already gone through, already talked about. But I think this is pretty cool because this is the first sermon preached after the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus meets Peter, he says, come follow me. He says, uh, you're a fisherman. I will, I will make you a fisher of men. You'll catch people instead of fish. I think Psalm 2, that, that sermon is, is that. And it mirrors that first miracle. Peter goes and stands up and he preaches a sermon. He casts out that net and he catches more than they could imagine at that sermon. Thousands of people all at once. And I can't help but think that his mind goes back to those busting nets catching these people that first sermon. Jesus is fulfilling the things that he said he would. But at the same time, what else did Jesus say? At the end of this path, he would die. And he continues. We start to see this in Acts. He, is, he and John step out. They are the examples to the church. What they go and do, eventually the rest of the church follows suit. Peter becomes one of those who exemplifies what it means to walk in light of the reality of Jesus. He also shows, even, even after the Holy Spirit comes, that he's vulnerable, that he's not perfect. In Galatians 2, we see this interaction between Peter and Paul, where Peter makes a bad choice, and Paul confronts him. Peter decides not to eat with the Gentile believers. He only eats with the Jewish believers. He separates out, and Paul confronts him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter admits these writings of Paul, they're kind of hard to understand. Like, he's pretty honest. Like, I, don't, I didn't get it, you know? Well, I think the Holy Spirit helped, but they're difficult to understand. He is okay with being imperfect. He is not a perfect apostle. We still see him make mistakes like in Galatians. But in first, first and Second Peter, we see his persistence, how he calls the church to walk after Jesus. Matthew 19, there is a promise made that in the kingdom, the 12, including Peter, would sit on thrones and would rule in Israel, would rule the 12 tribes. 
I think we forget sometimes that's, that's the other promise that was given. Yes, he was promised that he would die, but he was also promised that in the kingdom he would sit and he would rule with Jesus. I want to finish with a couple of, a couple of other places here. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4. So what do we do with this? What are we supposed to do? Acts chapter 4, I think, gives us a clue as to what we are supposed to take from this life of Peter. Verse 13. This is when they're standing before the Sanhedrin, standing before the council. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter had no reputation in and of himself. He wasn't a learned man. He wasn't a great man. They could tell from just the way that he, probably by the way he talked, by the way he carried himself, maybe by the way he dressed, he was not a high society type of gentleman. He definitely wasn't a scholar, but they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Who Peter was when the Holy Spirit came upon him was a recognition that he had been with the Messiah. When others look at us and how we walk, how we live, how we carry ourselves, how we speak, we could want to carry this air of knowledge, education, able to answer questions, maybe be of comfort, be a great encourager, very loving. But are we the type of disciple that when we speak and interact with others, they would say, you've been with Jesus. You've spent time with Jesus. Is that the type of disciple that we are? The reason why that's a double-edged sword, to use the word picture improperly in biblical sense, but still, is because for the Sanhedrin, was that a good thing? Or was that a bad thing? For those who need the Lord, it is a good thing. For those who are his enemy, it's not going to end well. For the enemies of the cross, for the enemies of Jesus, us being identified with him is us taking that same path that Peter takes, knowing that at the end, there might be an opportunity for us to follow Jesus in his ultimate example. Still a chance of that, right? One last. Acts chapter 16, which we'll get to. Acts chapter 16 is not about Peter. It's about Paul. Paul is traveling. This is the lead up to the Macedonian call. So we'll get here and we'll talk through this, but... Paul keeps trying to go to Asia. This is the motion of going on the map. That's, that's, that's what that is. When I, that's why I do that. But he's going up the map, trying to go into Asia. But for you, it's this way. He's trying to go into Asia. He keeps trying. He keeps going to this city and says, no, the Lord stops him. It doesn't go that way. And it, it it's names certain places, certain cities. Bithynia and, and Asia, it mentions specifically. He keeps trying to go that way. And then finally, the Macedonian call and Paul takes a sharp left, heads to Europe. So what about all those places? Well, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That wasn't for Paul. That was for Peter. 
That's where Peter's going to minister. So you can have this idea, well, I'm not as important as Paul. God's got something for Peter still, even towards the end. There's an important place for him. Things don't fall through the cracks, but it could be that instead of calling one person, he calls another. There are no gaps. We just have to be willing. And Peter, even though he's thought of as maybe being the apostle to the the Jews, seems like he ends up doing exactly what the Lord called them to do in the Great Commission, which is take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that Peter is. Lord, thank you that you included so many stories. You included stories of his victories and his failures. Thank you for making him an accessible character for us, an example of someone who is not prepared for where he's going to go, but instead needs to spend time with you, Lord, in order to be fit and ready for ministry. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we, who are at refuge, as we walk in Santa Rosa, Sonoma County, even extending outward, Lord, I pray that we would look at the example of Peter and that we would walk in such a way that as we interact with others, that we would be known for those who have been with Jesus. Lord, I pray that's true for those who would turn to the gospel, who would call Jesus their Lord, and I pray that would be true for the enemies of of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be counted among those who are with Jesus. You, I pray we would not shrink back when the servant girl asks us if we are one of his. Lord, I pray you give us boldness. Peter's a great example of both. Someone who can overcome that fear to become as bold as someone who would stand up in front of thousands of people and preach a sermon. Lord, I pray that you would make us those who follow hard after you. Just as you called Peter to minister to those who were familiar to him and those who are different than him, Lord, I pray that you would make us the same. Allow us, Lord, to minister to those who you call us to. Make us ready, and I pray that we would spend that time with you, that we might know and understand how to minister to others because we have, Lord, been with you. Lord Jesus, I pray that there would be a movement here in Sonoma County and that it would start with prayer and it would start with a serious assessment of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Pray this in his powerful name.